You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lassiter, co-founder and CEO of Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. Listen to our podcast to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Listen to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Listen to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. On today's episode, I speak with Chukwudi Nkanu, who is a Nigerian-American entrepreneur and investor, laser-focused on leveraging technology to solve today's systemic problems while creating a more equitable and inclusive future. He is the co-founder and CEO of Humblebrag, a tool for investors to find overlooked pre-seed founders and emerging tech hubs while giving scouts interest on the investment. In addition to that, Chukwudi is the managing director of Bingington Alumni Angels, the Bingington University Alumni Investment Network. He is also an active angel investor. Humblebrag is earlier stage than other companies we normally feature on Startups for Good. Although it's part of our mini series on alternative funding models, including OnDeck, WeFunder, Pando, and Exit to Community. We look forward to your feedback and please stay tuned. Welcome to Startups for Good. Chuk, thanks so much for coming on. Happy to be here, Miles. Thank you for having me. I think we're both running on not quite enough sleep, so let's jump right in. For sure. (laughs) I'd love to know how you decided to get into the entrepreneurship investing game. That's a great question. It started with not really feeling that the options presented to me when I was younger was what I wanted to do. My parents are Nigerian immigrants. Uh, Like I was my mother's belly when she came to the United States back in 95 and then was finally born in 96. And my parents, you know, being Nigerians, the options that are available to you, me as a child, from their perspective are you become a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer. And even going to school, like seeing what other kids wanted to do, like there was nothing that ever really resonated with me as a kid besides like being creative with my hands. I was great at like creating art, painting, drawing. Um, And I was good at like, you know, making things like all my action figures were made out of like paper cutouts. Like I would draw like things in my mind and just like cut them out. And so that initially I thought I wanted to be an engineer in college. I studied industrial and systems engineering, but I even chose that because it was broad and didn't really have a focus because I never really felt like something connected with me. But it wasn't until I realized like I love spinning up initiatives in college. I ended up starting three different companies um, all in education. I kept like, you know building things and creating organizations that I realized like, oh, entrepreneurship, that's what resonates. And then it wasn't until towards the end of my college career that I was like, oh, wait, I've heard this term venture capital thrown around. Like all my companies were, were bootstrapped in college. The focus was just on having an impact, not so much like, all right, how do I scale this as huge as possible? Like the scale was, the scale only came with like, all right, are we serving the needs of the our customers that we have? Venture capital was something I stumbled upon and only delve into after I failed to actually, after graduating, secure a job as a management consultant, because that that was what everyone did at my college. I went to Binghamton University and we had, they had great relationships and we have a lot of alumni at Ernst & Young, Deloitte, KPMG. And so I thought, oh, this would be the path for me. I was able to secure an internship, but I actually, you know, through founding different things and working on different projects, I didn't have the grades. Um, to secure a full-time offer. And that was what I was told uh, after my internship that you're not coming back. After that, 
I actually went to Japan. I was working, I'm on the board for a nonprofit in Japan that creates an amazing summer school experience called HLAB. And what we do, we bring Japanese high school students together for these different summer camps. And we bring college students from around the world to come and teach seminar topics to these Japanese high school students with the goal of exposing them to different career paths and things that they would like to do earlier on. And so after that great experience, I came back, I took like a month to just like think, and I'm like, you know what, I'm going to pursue this term venture capital. And that's how I started then like getting to building startup accelerators and working at startup accelerators, one called Venture Out in New York City. Um, they help international companies expand to the U.S. market through their, their government innovation arm. So I've worked with the German government in this time, the Russian government as well, actually through their Skokovo program, the Japanese government through Jetro and a, and a bunch of other folks. And then after that, I ended up building a, help building and scaling a startup accelerator and incubator called Start Ed, um, where, they, where they do, they focus on ed tech companies from around the globe and bring, bringing them to the U.S. market and letting them tap into the West and East Coast of ed tech investors, schools, et cetera, et cetera. And then that was how I finally fully got immersed into like entrepreneurship, venture capital, startup support, and like, you know, really what it means to seeing like all these amazing founders do great things. And how did Venture for America fit into that story? So Venture for America comes later. It comes after I had left StartEd at the end of 2019, and then was hoping to actually try to get a job at Venture Studio or at a crowdfunding platform. And then COVID hit and all interviews and all bets were off the table. It came later down the line after I'd like worked on a few initiatives that I helped spun up for COVID, such as like Frontline Foods uh, that got acquired by the World Central Kitchen after that, start a hackathon for like bringing together different COVID projects. After all these things, like time passed and my savings account was literally, it went all the way to zero. During the pandemic, I was, I was living with my parents and paying rent couldn't get a job in New York City. Like I kept applying to things. I, I was getting contract work to work on different things at different funds as well, but I couldn't really secure a job here or, and I didn't really have an idea for a company at the time. And so Venture for America was like my last like resort of like, okay, they're going to help me get a job somewhere else. And I also just wanted to leave New York City. So I wasn't happy with what I was, was doing, just how I felt, you know, being here. I didn't feel, I lost my confidence as I was here. And so I joined Venture for America and it was great. I got exposed to this great network of very like-minded people who are very passionate about having an impact, but also, you know, want to do that through working in tech. I met some of my close homies, um, Dustin George Bell, who's my roommate. Um, shout out to him back in Austin. Um, Nazir Chris, great dude doing his thing as a senior associate at 68 Capital and Gregory Hunter, who's killing it um, in Baltimore right now. And these are like, these are like the core, some of the core folks and friends that I made there that really had a great impact on me, helped me see things that I didn't see in myself and get my confidence back. And once you had your confidence back, what'd you do with it? Uh, I went to work. So, you know, and it's funny, like it was a journey to even get there because how that even happened, me and my George, my roommate, we moved to Austin. So we, we were, we still kind of had a tough time getting jobs because of our founder experience. And so we ended up just, you know, he called me, he's like, hey, I've always wanted to move to Austin. You and I are in a similar position, not being happy with where we're at. How about we just make this crazy move to Austin? We're both basically broke. We have to freelance to like even finance the move, but like, let's just do it. You know, we know nobody there, but it just seems like a land of opportunity. And like, I was like, sure, because I felt George is a really solid guy and he is that we could both make something happen. And so we, I took the Amtrak from New York to Austin for four days 
to make it happen. He got there a week before me. We uh, freelanced our way using Craigslist and other tools to like, you know, get enough money to pay for one month of an Airbnb. And then after that, once we landed, we were like, all right, we're going to be broken and homeless in the next like month or so if we don't like figure out a way to make money. So let's do that. So we built websites. We networked our way to like, you know, meeting different like folks and high stakeholders in the ecosystem who were able to refer us to people who needed help, who had contract work. Um, and then we found, found finally got some gigs. I ended up becoming the product implementation manager at Lingo. They're a company that uh, uses AI to help companies manage business communication risk. I was helping build their NLP models there. I mean, I was also their head of customer success while doing that. And then George ended up starting his first company Spotlight and he secured 100K in funding for that. So that like that for, for me, that whole experience of like, all right, let me just create something from nothing again, but literally for my life, like was great. And that's, that's what I ended up doing. And then after that, I ended up getting laid off after a couple of months from a lit lingo because it just, it wasn't a fit for me to like be building models and had a customer success at the same time. And that same week, actually, I met my, I met, actually met my first investor, um, Drew Parish at RSLP Ventures during the snowstorm in Austin. I don't remember if you remember that. This is like February of 2021. Uh, I never saw the news for this because I was there, you know, in, in the middle of it. But we had, George and I had no power, no heat and only like the running cold water. And I used my hotspot actually to talk to my first investor the Monday, the first Monday of the snowstorm. And then February, he gave me a soft commit for 50K for just the idea of Humblebrag. And tell us some more about Humblebrag. Yep. So Humblebrag, it initially came from the idea of like, and it still is very core to the idea of, all right, so underrepresented founders, they are given less than 2% of capital allocated to them. And that's becoming increased. It's that's becoming a recurring figure over time, despite like the record high levels of capital that we're seeing in the venture market. Um, all these different players are getting more involved. Tiger Global has seen it. They, they smelled the money and it came in and it's like, wow, what's going on here. And at the same time, you know, VCs, angels, funders, they just, they're looking for the best deals, but they're somewhat crippled by that. their narrow networks. Like unless, you know, the typical fund manager network is like, all right, my past investments plus who I already know. Well, that like, that kind of, you know, begins like an incestuous practices of like, all right, you're investing in folks who your previous investments are, you know, seeing, and also from folks you already know. So how are you meeting new folks? How are you optimizing to see deal flow outside your network? Because everyone has their own, their network circle of competence. And like after a certain while, they're just people that you won't be meeting because they're just not in your network or in your area of influence. And so we thought, all right, there's also a third play to this where that there's a VC scouts that were created to help serve this function of helping um, VCs find different deals. And we thought, hey, what if we just pay these individuals, um, especially those that are in areas where like Idaho, Iowa, Detroit, places that like founders who are underrepresented typically are or that are from marginalized communities and they don't get funding. What if we brought scouts from these communities and got them paid and then that would just solve the problem for everyone? So that's really how the idea of humble brag came to, to, to fruition. And how does it work? So how it works right now, it's simple. We right now we're building an amazing scout network community of, of folks around the globe. We're in private beta right now, which is 50 scouts. And I say globe because we do have some folks representative from Africa, from Southeast Asia, but we're mainly like U.S. focused. But there are some funds that have expressed interest in like emerging deal, 
deal flow and just scouts that we, we feel we cool to work with. And so we have this community and right now they just send deals to us in our Slack group. And then we send that via email to different funders who are interested in like seeing these deals bi-weekly. That's it right now, you know, simple MVP, but the hope and the goal long-term is to create a platform and really a marketplace, but also a platform where scouts can both showcase what they're working on, the deals that they're doing, their insights, and the data that they're actually seeing, meeting all these different these different founders, as well as like VCs being able to subscribe individually, the same way they do to like a Substack of the deal flow for these individual folks. And then, the, and through us, like we then put these people in the room and say, all right, what do you want to do in terms of compensating these scouts? Some people ha have opted in to, to do carry compensation, which is really cool. And we're long-term hoping to like actually get cash, which right now is pretty hard, but carry is like the standard form through like Angelus deal partners that folks have been interested in doing. And how do you measure the quality of the scout or the deal? Yep. That that's a great question. The quality of the scout, I think is the first thing we measure because that also informs the quality of the deal. The way through like doing this now, like I think there, there are several different types of scouts because there are scouts, you know, they have their own bucket of capital that they deploy through other funds. There are scouts that just make intros. And then between that, you know, there are folks who are like, they're young, they're students, they're ambassadors to campus deal flow, uh, which, some, which some funds are interested in. And then there are folks who are like, you know, older seasoned veterans in tech that just have a really deep network access that we, we have. And then there are other folks who like, you know, for example, one of our scouts, she, she's scouted for the U.S. government before helping bring opportunities to get corporate partnerships between post-series A African companies. And so it's really like, you know, what A, we measure what types of deals they're actually seeing. Like, let's see the last couple of deals that you've either sent or seen. I'm going to use that as a metric. And then from there, like, you know, what, what level of access do you have to certain deals that, you know, that some of the investors that are signing up for our platform would be interested in. And then from there, it's just a matter of like bridging the two, you know, but I think it's important to like, for us being very upfront with like understanding, like, you know, what they have access to as a metric, what the volume of deals they're actually seeing as well is very important because like, if you're seeing only, you know, three deals a year that are solid, like that's not. We, we, we need a higher volume of that. But if you're seeing like a solid, like a high volume, but like, you know, there's solid quality going in, like that's also very important as well. So. And you said you've been experimenting with compensation models. Is there anyone just getting paid cash? So we, it's funny, we actually have, we've paid out cash before to some of our scouts, like out of our own pocket as humble brag. But now at this time, no, there, there is no one getting paid cash right now. Long-term, the hope is that there are funds that will opt into paying cash and there are, they are out there. But right now, everyone that's on our platform is described to just either, it's either they're doing carry or at the time that there's no compensation because we're in beta. And what is the regulatory constraint that you're dealing with as far as paying for deal flow? So the regulatory constraint is, all right, are you a registered broker dealer? And so through us, like how we're navigating this is that we're, we're bringing people in the room, but we're not the ones that are like, all right, you are paying us for deal flow at this time. Um, long-term, we're aiming to just be a subscription network where people subscribe the same way they would to an angel network and say, hey, like, all right, you're subscribing for access to, to just talk to scouts and connect with them, but you're actually like really paying these individuals themselves. And you both go together 
and decide what type of a scout placement agreement you would like to to go and do and angela's deal partners makes that super easy to facilitate but that that's like the biggest constraint right there and what we're working on how to overcome that is become a venture advisory firm that way like we were in that gray area to say like all right we can actually facilitate more of these and even like you know help maybe get some compensation for ourselves from that how does someone become a scout they they go to our website and they sign up for our pilot program or they hop on our waitlist either or and then i will get i um and our community manager uh josh will actually get to them and it's a, it's a simple process uh first you sign up for the pilot program and that lets us know you're interested in actually joining beta but if you just hop on the waitlist we'll get to you at a later date and that pro the process is very straightforward there's a form you fill out it should take you about like five minutes to import your information your the deals you have access to the type of network that you have and then we get to you and get back and then i'd say for our next because we're looking to add more folks to our pool of scouts in the next two months and so the beginning of the second quarter is when like we'll be like all right hey what's going on how you doing let's get you in here and you've been a scout yourself any tips for how to be a good scout oh yeah and i'm about to like put like my even my philosophy around scouting like scouts are like the godfathers and the godmothers of founders like the whole purpose of and even look at this from like both an uh, if you were scouting athlete standpoint the whole goal of a scout is to surface opportunities to investors before their actual opportunities. So you go out, you see the lay of the land, then you report back to the group of like, oh, we've, we've seen this, we're about to come up on it. And so like the same way for founders, like you meet founders before they're actually ready. And then you help present options to these founders and, you know, and you're, you're of service to them. Because I think that there's a lot of scout programs out there where like scouts are glorified BDRs, where they just send emails to founders, regardless of what stage you're at. And Unfortunately, due to the incentive structure of certain scout programs, like scouts, they're just incentivized to just send as many deals as possible to investors, regardless of like quality. And like, that's a waste of a founder's time because it's like, oh, like, can you, oh, maybe, maybe you can connect me and maybe help me get an investment in so-and-so. No, you're helping jumpstart the relationship for the fund with this founder. And ideally, you know, being a godmother, godfather means you're, you're providing value to this founder. And so like what that could look like, I know there are scouts in our network who have gotten folks, their co-founders, a CTO, technical hire, first customers, first partnership, help them secure like relationships and funding, of course, with investors prior to like even, you know, being in a humble brand community. And that's like important because like, you know, this is a long-term game, which is why for us, the compensation piece is like so important, like aligning it properly, because we want scouts to have the right incentives to like properly serve founders. Uh, while still not getting burnt out from doing that at scale. And so if you're a scout, if you want to become a scout, know who you actually want to be support, know what levers you have access to to help these founders reach their goals and, you know, and help them out because like, that's like, it's little things like, you know, even something as simple as like helping them vet what funds that they should be qualifying for, like, you know, having conversations with, or just figuring out the landscape is so important because like, you're there to help them you're there to build that relationship for that fund, but also you're, you're a human too. They're human too. They're building their life's work, like help them out, let them know what options they have. And then like, once you're of service to them, like, then it's like, all right, like helping them get investment is, it's not the easiest part of the conversation, but that's what you're there for, you know, in the sense of like helping them measure, is this, this fund actually a fit for them? Like, do they have a real shot at getting in with this fund? And especially for like 
if you're a scout working with underrepresented founders, like you help you help them figure out the game of venture, of fundraising. You know, how are they supposed to talk to folks? Is their pitch right? And yes, you're meeting a lot of founders a week, but like definitely like always try to be of value and be of service because that just helps everyone in the ecosystem. And any tips for raising money? Tips for raising money. Uh, we've, so humble brag, we've raised 110K from two institutional investors and one angel so far. First tip, uh, qualify your investors before you talk to them. I'm really lucky. You know, this is my first venture back company and our investors are amazing. Like I'm so happy to have met like Drew Parrish of RSLP Ventures, Kelby and Candice at Mammoth View. Like they've, they've been phenomenal um, in their support and helping me and my team just like really build this. They, they understand it's a hard problem that we're, we're trying to address and having investors that are, because they're, they're essentially team members for you in a way of like, there are folks who will go to bat for me. There are folks who've helped us get started. There are folks who like on a Saturday, they'll have a, a three hour conversation if needed of helping us align our go to market and just our strategy for like getting more scouts on board, navigating the, the legal and regulatory barriers of what we're trying to do as well. And so it's important for you to qualify and understand like, who is it that you will be working on? That's what I mean by qualifying. I'm working with rather. And if they're, a, they're actually a fit, like, you know, there are platforms like landscape.vc and VC guide HQ that help you gauge like, and get reviews on like, whether these investors are solid, who they are. So I definitely like leverage that in your diligence process. And then really refine your story, like your actual origin story and your why for starting this company. An interesting note about like how humble brag like got started or even was like a conversation Drew's in my first conversation actually was not about like me pitching in humble brag i actually didn't go into that that first conversation with the idea for even the company it was just a conversation around like we were just meeting each other like it, it was an intro for my roommate george and i think i was actually supposed to scout for Drew. like that was my expectation with the convert with the conversation and then through just like telling him my lens on the ecosystem my perspective and my hate is not the correct word, but I guess disdain for just certain practices, the way capital is being allocated and just like, you know, where, like the way we're even just like solving problems, but assuming we're being innovative in venture, like all that energy, because there's so many blind spots in the way we innovate through like both venture and just in general, that's a whole, that's a, we could have that kind of a while, but that's a whole, like, I just have such disdain for the way we do things. And yet we think we're like such a advanced society. Oh my God. <laughs> but yeah that through that conversation though like that's when it was like oh wait dude actually go do some research on this come back to me and then that's that's how humble i got started well let's have that conversation i'd love to hear what gets you so fired up about the current innovation ecosystem uh it's that i think from I'm and George is if George is listening to this, I definitely am less logical than I am like emotional in the way just I intuitively feel and grasp things. But just from like working as a scout, running accelerator programs, and even being a founder as well, or seeing and seeing different founders, I just feel like there's so many blind spots in the way we allocate capital to individuals. Like Yes, there's a pedigree and, and you need different vetting processes, but like the job of VCs is to, it's to mitigate risk, but also take risk on behalf of their LPs. 
And so I understand like, you know, all right, it's been working at Harvard and Stanford for the last like couple of decades. Like, you know, the people they've churned out because they have solid ecosystems, we should go there. I don't understand why like it took people so long to start seeing what's happening in emerging markets and like, you know, leap for that. Like now that everyone's getting involved, like, you know, like I love, I love what's happening. Like, like for example, in Africa right now, all the, it's like, there's a funding round being announced like every month. And now, you know, I'm seeing on social media, oh my God, I finally just had Jalof Rice. You know, I, I dine with some African founders. This is so great. There's a bias here too, because I, my investment thesis, I like to invest in like origin stories, main characters, but like also like to invest in people who are like solving like problems that, you know, their story informs. So like take, for example, my roommate, you know, he's building a company right now where he has, he's been someone who's aspired to break into the NBA, didn't work out. He's works hard, but he just doesn't like cardio, you know, like it's something that he hates. It's a necessity that he does all the time, but it's not something he's passionate about. He's creating an app now to actually turn it into a turn, a turf, a gamified competitive gamified turf war game where you can collaborate with folks who are also running to earn and win territory um, in your area. So you can actually own different pieces of land through his app. It's called cardio. It's cool. But like, I love when like someone's story informs what they're building versus like, all right, this person went from Harvard, they know so-and-so or this person for whatever they've, they have this level of pedigree. That's why we're investing, you know, too, versus like there's someone in Iowa, Idaho, Kentucky, who is building something amazing as well, but because you just don't care or you, you're just not in the know um, or in those network effects. And you think that all the innovation um, it's within San Francisco, is within New York, is within Austin, Texas. That's all you need to know. Like that just never made sense to me of why it was just like so focused on specific locations and not seeking out the best founders. Like I love Rise of the Rest. Um, I love what uh, Steve Case is doing. I love, it's just, in, in my mind, like that just creates blind spots in innovation because on a fundamental like human society level, like we have problems in healthcare, problems in education that, yeah, they'll probably be there for a while until we crack the code on them. That just like, they all go back into the background in comparison to like potential novel things that people love to invest because, and the reason why we invest in those novel things is because like for those folks, like the problems of education, healthcare, et cetera, have been like actually resolved. So they don't care. That's why I, that's why I believe a lot of those things don't get a lot of funding. They, I mean, they, numbers wise they do but like it's not really a priority for a lot of investors and i think also too just not having diverse perspectives around the table for building companies like we all we empirical there's empirical data saying like having a diverse team is why literally we'll, we'll get you the returns you need and is clearly why you should invest in both diverse founders diverse teams across the board at every level of every organization but then like the the action of that, it's so easy to hire so-and-so son, daughter, or whoever that you know from college versus actually doing that. And in doing so, you like, not just from a team standpoint, you miss certain things, but even from an innovation standpoint, like there are certain problems that someone like me in New York, you know, living like in Long Island at the border of Queens that I have, that someone like rural Kentucky, like I wouldn't see that yet. I have a lot of access to capital. They have access to a great idea, and they could build it and scale it, but they're just, they're just, they're not outside my circle of confidence as me an individual now, because that's my focus. But like, generally, that's just how it is. Long story short, like, it's just, there's so many blind spots 
I think it's really just blind spots and now we innovate by not having those folks at the table and also part of the innovation conversation, like what is innovation for us? You know, what qualifies a new idea as being, you know, great and then the execution of that, like should we be executing on certain things? What is our goal as a society? There's, there's the could we, should we conversation. And even like the first time I went to Silicon Valley was in like 2019. Now Silicon Valley is more of a mental framework, I would say now. But even so, like it's a lot, there's a lot of money in that place. And I think there's too much money for me, for me to be going there and then in, like walking around and interrupting multiple homeless couples that are taking naps in the middle of the street um, or on the side of the road. Like that just didn't make sense to me. Now I think I might be rambling right now, but that is just like something. It, it just boggles my mind because that, all the stories I heard of like such an innovative place and, you know, simple things of not simple, but like being able to resolve the problems of its constituents to empower them to like innovate more, to empower them to like, you know, further the future and further society and further the human race, you know, as they tout it they have the gini coefficient of a third world country like the the metric used to measure whether or not certain nations have the living standards that they need for their people to actually be competent and live but also the uh, a vibrant economy like they have the money but they don't have the living standards and that just boggled my mind from a lot of different levels and so for me now like the goal is just like all right these folks that haven't been able to participate um, in innovation, whether that's venture, whether that's just starting their own companies, whatever, being of service to them. And yes, now I'm starting from the venture lens because it's one of the most impactful. It's also one of the hardest, but like from there, the hope is like the more folks that we typically don't get to see who can have these conversations, the more we can actually solve both pressing problems, but like problems that we already see, but, you know, lack certain perspectives to address effectively. And that's the, that's my whole thesis there, man. Like, it's just certain people aren't in rooms where they, if they got the capital, they could actually address certain problems because their story, their narrative, their life, they literally lived it. Miles, I'm saying this knowing you're, you're a white man, but yeah, it's just, there's a lot of problems that white men have had over the last couple hundred years that have been addressed and, and resolved from their perspective, but not for everyone else's. I think that's just detrimental to the, the long-term advancements of humanity because we, we're just, there's just so many perspectives now, especially with the billions of people that are alive. You said so much. I don't know where to go next, except for to recommend this book. Maybe you've read The Innovation Blind Spot, which I think has a lot of the same themes you're talking about. Oh yeah, I, I read it. I love it. That topic, I can, I can talk for. That's that's how I got my first check. Like I can talk for days about that. And I, I feel like I honestly did put a filter on a lot of stuff I was saying. <laughs> so part part of the mission of Humble Brag is to address this lack of diversity in founders. Is that right? Oh yeah, but I think fundamentally, because to your point about the innovation blind spot, I read it. I love it. Ross Bear, like. Everything he's done with Village Capital is like so cool in my mind. And I think like, and, and, and I agree with a lot of things. I agree with a lot of stuff before I even read the book. It was recommended to me like probably like six months into starting Humble Brag. And so, yeah, it's, it's about like, it's about the lack of representation in entrepreneurship, but it's really about like just the fundamental way we innovate. I just feel things would be better if we just had more, like everyone at the table having these conversations and addressing these problems. And that's like, right now, it doesn't 
show a lot in like what we're doing, but long-term for me and my life mission, like the goal is to tackle that at every stage, but especially like right now in funding and in education, I think like that's, those are the two places where I, th- I feel like we could do the most work because there's, it's one thing to like serve founders and, you know, support people when they are founders, what they're doing and getting them the capital they needed, et cetera. There's another thing to serve them before they even become founders. Like that student level of like students can be founders. Yes. But like the fundamental learnings of like when you, cause you spend what 18 years roughly in the system of just learning, growing, adapting and being educated. Like what if you were able to, you know, take whatever the learnings and the experiences of, of students when they're young and help them funnel that, whether or not they become entre- entrepreneurs, but just like to help them become more innovative and address like certain problems, like help turn them into an army of problem solvers that can like actually tackle any complex challenge, issue or whatever that they see. And so that's like my perspective on like, you know, my life's work. So like right now I kind of ended up in funding, like humble brag is not something I set out to, to start. It just kind of happened, but it's also something that I'm happy and very passionate about working on. But like long-term, I know, like, you know, after addressing funding, after building what I call the VC adjacent marketplace, allowing anyone to participate in supporting founders without necessarily being a VC, then I'm going a level deeper all right, what happens if we get to these entrepreneurs before they're entrepreneurs? And where physically do you think innovation will be coming from in the future? You talked about who needs to change. What about the where? Like geographically, you mentioned Midwest, you mentioned Africa. Where do you think the future of innovation is? So I still think it's anywhere, but like I have a bias on Africa. And I think like there's the reason why is the average person in Africa right now is like 22, 23 years old. And so there's a lot of young innovators that, you know, in my mind, have some main character origin stories because like they're on a continent that has been preyed upon for centuries, generations, but it's on the up and up. It's catching the attention of a lot of folks. They're very, you know, very founders. They are very capital efficient from just like talking with and working with some founders, they're very capital efficient because like they're not expecting to get huge amounts of capital. And so when they get it, it's like, oh my God, like let me use this a lot, which I think the same is said for a lot of underrepresented founders here, but it's also like, but the capital efficient and able to actually execute, which is actually amazing. You have like a main, like an overarching main character arc for centuries seeding into all these young people who are not their they're they've they're living in it but they're not necessarily bound by it because they're young and they're open to experimenting and innovating and i think so much amazing stuff is going to come out and this is a country that like they leapfrog like you know they went straight to mobile before like desktop so like i'm not a country a continent and so like what's going to what's going to happen you know next like i'm excited to see that i'm excited to be part of that investors talk a lot about filmo like what's happening in africa and like you know being a part of that is one of the, the biggest things that gives me any sort of FOMO. And I'm excited, I'm truly excited to see like, you know, what's happening there. I will be going back like multiple times each year moving forward, like I'm Nigerian American, um, both to see family, but also just to like, you know, see what's going on. Well, thanks. Any advice for aspiring founders out there? Learn how to tell your story and tell it succinctly. Like that's something I'm still working on. Definitely know what your story is, tell it. 
be confident when you tell it. Like, that's the biggest thing. Before you open your mouth, no one really knows what you're going to say. It's only after you said it that they'll be like, oh, all right, you're saying this or that. So refine your story. And like, that's most of the battle. Like a lot of this song and dance adventure, um, raising money, you know, doing the great work, like you as a founder, you have to be able to tell your story, tell why you're doing what you're doing and how you're doing it concretely. And that's what, you know, and the way when you do that effectively, that's when folks will be like, okay, wow, I remember this person's story. It's so interesting what they're doing. All right. I want to learn more about that. And, all, and, and the numbers like do the work as well, I think is the biggest thing now, because I think because of how much money's in the market right now there's, and what founders have been able to achieve with like these interesting, crazy, abnormal funding rounds, there are a lot of founders out there like walking around with ideas and no traction and asking for like, oh, I have this idea for whatever D to C. I think there's not a lot of money about to be going to D to C anymore. Like so many folks have been getting, that, that's a whole thing. But like long story short, like there's a lot of folks who've like been getting money or asking for money rather with like nothing. And there are folks who've gotten it recently um, throughout this entire time. But like, I think everyone's talks about the market correction. I think we're moving towards that, especially with like what's happening in Russia and Ukraine. Like a lot of folks lost money, like a lot of angel investors lost money. And so bearing that in mind, like do the work, show that what you're building is important and that, and have proof of it, not just because you are passionate about it, but because like people are saying like, yo, we need this. And the numbers show that, and then go race, tell that story and go race. That's it. Well, thanks for that advice. Build something people want and then go yeah. raise the money you need to make it happen. Thanks so much for coming on yeah. the show. I appreciate it. Where should people follow up online? Yep. So uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. Um, I think those are the two best places. So my my handle on all my social media is at my last name, uh, middle initials, N is in Nancy, and then my first name. So Kanu and Chukwudi. Um, no spaces, no nothing in between. You can find me on everything that way. Uh, you can also feel free to reach out if you're a founder, if you're a scout, uh, at chook at humblebrag.ai, and I'll follow up with you. Always happy to chat. Thank you so much. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. Startups for Good is brought to you by Purpose Built a venture studio focused on human potential. If you're inspired today and want to reach out, please visit our website, purposebuilt.vc. Thank you.